Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, the co-host, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? Well, I'm hanging in. I mean, these are tumultuous times, but I thank heavens they've passed us by. Richard, I was stunned to open up my Wall Street Journal last weekend and find in its editorial section uh, an admission by you that you are a a heavy-handed, pro-regulatory, anti-tech activist. I I have in my hands here a a weekend interview that you did. uh, The headline of the piece is The Common Carrier Solution to Social Media Censorship. Richard, when did you convert to, to big government? I never converted to big government. The common carrier stuff is a very circumscribed, very careful body of law. Um, Big government and common carriers began somewhere around 1680 with a piece by Sir Matthew Hale called To the Gates of the Ocean. And the question was, when is it that you do and do not allow a price system to operate? And so writing at that particular time, he gave what is the great example, uh, which is you have a harbor which could only have one operating crane to take people in. And there's no close substitute anywhere out. And what happened is Hale says in competitive markets, we always love to have a situation in uh, which you let the prices be set by whoever wants to set them. But he said when you are, quote, affected with the public interest, i.e. there's a monopoly constraint, there is, in fact, a much more complicated legal arrangement on the side of the producer. He is obligated to take all comers. Uh, But on the side of the customers, they're obliged to pay uh, fair and reasonable rates. On the side of the producer, there can be no playing favorites so that the only grounds on which you're allowed to discriminate between people are at least as a first approximation because of differential cost of service. And this doctrine then made its way into the United States um, after a getting itself into the British cases. The first use of it in the courts was actually about 125 years after um, uh, Hale wrote that article, called, the case called All Nut and English, which had to do with customs houses, which had a legal monopoly. And it turned out that they were not allowed to raise the price above the standard rates for others because that would defeat the Crown's policy, uh, which was to give tax-exempt status to any goods that would ship through England but did not stop in England. And this was, again, a pure monopoly. It comes to the United States in 1876 in a case called Munville, Illinois, which cites the language from All Nothing English, the 1810 English case, and he's trying to figure out what a virtual monopoly is. And at this point, we're something in the soup uh, because the standard definition of a monopoly in the strongest case, single firm, no close substitutes. The moment you start getting to network industries like railroads, it turns out that there's monopoly power without an absolute monopoly, and you have to figure out how much power is too much, how much power is too little. But the tradition of having rate regulation with respect to people who have substantial market power, i.e. not a pure monopoly, but enough to raise the thing significantly above competitive level, um, was fully recognized in the United States by 1890 in the Minnesota rate cases. The issue that you then have to do is to figure out how this carries over to common carriers when you're not talking about rates. And it's not a very easy question. So it turns out you see there are three positions. And far from being a firebrand state, this time, Adam, I'm the moderate in this debate. On the one side, there are people who simply announce that, well, these guys get subsidies under Section 230. Uh, there's a kind of a cahoots alliances between them and the government. And so what happens is we have to treat them as though they're a state actor. And since they're a state actor, they're subject to a non-discrimination obligation under the Equal Protection Clause. And then there are the hardline liberals, many of whom occupy the Cato Institute and so forth, 
Microsoft, who said, you don't know anything about the way this particular market works. It's a really highly competitive market with lots of churn and lots of turnover, and you should do no regulation at all. Uh, my position is somewhere in the middle. And if I thought that you could generate close substitutes, I'm very much against regulation. The difficulty here is every time you see one of these guys come up, they're branded as a right-wing terrorist organization, and they're shut down either by places like Amazon or Google, or they can't get their apps up on their app shop. So companies like Parler and Gab, none of which I've ever seen, um, are basically systematically excluded. So that's what gives rise to the call, because it seems as though these things are based on content. So what's the intermediate position? I'm just going to give it very quickly. Uh, there are two things that you can't allow on this, and these go right back to the common carrier rules. So you have a non-discrimination rule at reasonable rates. doesn't mean that when you have a train, you're required to take thugs um, who want to beat up every other passenger at the same fare as you charge everybody else. There is dismissal for cause in all of these situations. And when it turns out that when you're in a media situation, uh, you don't have to tolerate threats of force and you don't have to tolerate overt de of defamation. The hard question is, is that what these guys are about? So to give you but one illustration, uh, I can't remember which of these characters had decided that, well, anytime you want to put anything up about medicines on our website, which is inconsistent with what the WHO, the World Health Organization, says, we're going to take it down on the ground that's false and misleading. Um, disputes over the effectiveness of medicine are not disputes as to whether Jones or Smith ran the red light. And they're going way over and when they start to apply this category of misrepresentation to these particular kinds of cases. And so what happens is there's a terrible second best world here. Either you regulate them too little or you regulate them too much. And what's happened is which do you choose depends on how big the abuses are that you perceive. And it's a terrible situation because the media essentially in these dominant, very strong market positions, not a lot of close substitutes, are in fact uniformly very strong left wing on everything they say and do. It's rumored that Jack Dorsey takes such strong positions, not because he believes them quite, but because his staff of technicians and experts and computer geeks and so forth all insist that he take a hard line position or he leaves. And when somebody says, like the Cato types often say, well, you know, look, you've got four firms in the industry. If you've got a 1% share of the market, uh, it's not close substitution at all. And so what you have to do is to use standard measures of industry concentration, so-called Herfindahl index, to figure out whether you've got a problem. And if you do that <clears throat> with respect to the media you do, it's even worse, I might add, Adam, because it's not at all clear that you don't have collusion going on amongst these companies putting forward a common policy. And if you do have that, everybody getting together and saying, we're keeping all these right-wing organizations off our site, then it's an antitrust violation as well. And so between the common carrier rules, the antitrust rules, and a lot of the uncertainty in this particular case, it's just very hard to get to the bottom of it. But I'm a moderate on this particular issue. This is the difference between being a classical liberal as opposed to a libertarian and a classical liberal as opposed to a socialist. So I plead innocent to the charge. Well, I've, I've given a lot of thought over the last few years about the power of, of the big internet platform companies, the social media companies and others, and I have some concerns about them. But first, I mean, what struck me about, about this piece, and again, it was a, it's not an op-ed by you. It's, it's, a long inter, it's a, a, an account of a long interview with you by the Wall Street Journal's uh, Tunku uh, Veradarajan. It's reading through your account of these companies as, as common carriers. I was struck by what I thought was the resemblance to the arguments that were made about the actual 
infrastructure companies, right? The, the, the net neutrality arguments for regulation of the broadband internet service providers as in effect common carriers. I mean, it was obviously, it was framed in slightly different terms of, of the Communications Act of 1934 and the Telecom Act of 96. But as, as the late Stephen Williams observed, if I remember correctly, in, in, uh, in, in his separate opinion when the DC Circuit was hearing these net neutrality cases, he said this is an attempt to regulate these companies as, as common carriers. I mean, isn't is this the same arguments that people were making about common carrier regulation of of the internet service providers? And, yes. and if so, what, what's different this time? Yeah, what happens is the, the issues you always have to worry about are first whether or not you get some degree of neutrality uh, without having the coercive stuff by way of government. And it turns out, for example, when they had whichever merger it was. Um, I think it was AT&T and MCI or uh, Time Warner. One of the things that they did is they said to all of the outside providers, we will never cut off your services. We will agree in advance in order to get this merger to go through to binding arbitration uh, so that what happens is there'll be continuous service and we will not essentially, quote unquote, abuse the position that we have as running the system in order to favor our own content with respect to the way the system operates. And you don't see any effort whatsoever about that to come place with this particular situation. In addition, there's another complication, which is if you start imposing net neutrality, there's a real question that if you have to carry all sorts of other people, somebody's going to tell you how to make the rate differentiations, you're going to reduce the level of investment that takes place. So uh, to give you one illustration of how net neutrality become quite crazy is if you look at a single competitive firm, um, say something like Federal Express, they offer all sorts of menus, options. Uh, You can take the two-day service, the one day service, the Saturday service, the expedited service, whatever it is. If you start looking at net neutrality, the argument is that if somebody wants to pay more money to buy faster service, we're not going to allow that because it's not neutral amongst these various parties. And so they have a definition of neutrality, which essentially doesn't allow differentiations based upon strength of demand by customers, doesn't allow for product differentiation. None of those issues are involved in the kinds of things that we start to have here. And so if you start looking at the way in which the system runs, uh, when they back off the net neutrality regulation, the evidence is not perfectly clear, but it seems as though net, um, network speeds went up, network investment went up, and so forth. And so, as I said, a lot of these things are heavily contingent, and you have to know what's going on. And when you're doing these things, there's a constant trade-off between getting equal access at the back end and stimulating investment at the front end. If you require too much non-discrimination, you're going to kill investment under these circumstances. So that That's why it's an extremely complicated sort of problem. And I mean, the reason I feel very good about the piece is that, first of all, it generated a huge number of comments, I might add, um, online, which is always nice, is that uh, there were people attacking me from both sides simultaneously. And when you sit there in the middle, a little bit alone, um, you feel better. And I think it's possible if somebody wanted to look at this, to come up with a legislative program which could build in uh, the limitations on the non-discrimination principle and deal with the various questions having to do with defamation on the one hand, misinformation, misrepresentation, uh, coercion on the other hand. But there is a sense in which the Internet regulation in this area is easier because the price element simply drops out of it. And if you go back to the earlier cases and including the net neutrality cases that Steve Williams 
blessed memory he should have. Um, uh, it turns out that that's a more difficult problem to do in many ways than this one. So, I mean, I'm quite happy with the position that I took. What I'm not completely sure about is what the state of play is on the ground. And if it turns out that these new companies can start to spring up and get themselves some traction, then I'm all against any form of regulation except the standard defamation suits and so forth. And how do they apply to common carriers, which is what Section 230 treats these people as? If all you do is publish content and you don't survey it and edit it and change it, fine. But if you're going to say this guy gets on and that guy gets off, I don't think even under the current law there's a particularly strong case for allowing you to get essentially liability from defamation, given the fact that you've decided to project and endorse the things that go forward on one side and to ban things on another. I'll be very blunt about it. If somebody were to say to me, Richard, uh, we are not going to put your latest article up on this particular website because we think it came salacious material in it. I regard that as a form of defamation if, in fact, the charge is false. And, and I think that people don't really understand that. It's one thing to take something off the media and not say anything about it. But if you take it off on the grounds that it's quack medicine and so forth, I think it's a much more serious type situation. And if they're endorsing one set of speakers and denouncing another set of speakers, I think at that particular point, uh, the 230 liability exemption ought not to apply. Now, even if I sort of grant for the sake of argument that, that these social media companies are, are and should be treated as common carriers, I mean, the, the, the event that gave rise to this whole sort of event, is, as Tunku makes clear at the beginning of the article, is, is the, the social media companies dumping Donald Trump off their platforms um, in the aftermath of the January 6th riots on, on Capitol Hill and President Trump's, uh, you know, mis, misinformation about the election. I, I just don't I don't think that dumping Donald Trump off the platform represents uh discrimination between similarly situated customers. I, I mean, his use of social media is profoundly different than just about anybody else's, even other foreign heads of state. I mean, Donald Trump's footprint on social media has always been much, much more significant. Um, and so I don't see why these companies need to treat Donald Trump similarly to others when, in fact, his use of the service and its effects uh, on you know globally was just fundamentally different than any other user. But I'll put that there, but I'll just back up and say, again, that's just for the sake of argument. I, it's, it's hard for, I, again, I have no shortage of criticisms of Google, Facebook, Twitter. Um, but I don't, it's just, it, I don't understand how they are common carriers because I don't see how they are monopolists unless you define their market extremely narrowly. Yes, Twitter has a monopoly on tweets, and Facebook has a monopoly on Facebook posts. But both of these, in addition to competing with one another, uh, they are just forms of, of broad online communication, which goes far, far beyond Twitter and Facebook. I just don't see them as, as monopolies. I certainly don't see Facebook as a monopoly. I don't use it. I don't see Twitter as a, as a monopoly in most respects because I don't use it for, for much of anything. Well, let me just start with the first question about Donald Trump and then go to the very elusive question as to what counts as a monopoly. With respect to Trump, the argument is, yes, he's issued some abusive tweets. Um, yes, he's made charges that the elections were rigged, which may or may not be false. One of the things I think that's quite extraordinary about this, and, and I am not a professor of facts, as I keep on saying, I don't know what happened in Georgia and Fulton County um, and so forth. Uh, but what you do is you see 
only general denials. You don't see somebody going up and finding one of these marginal networks and saying, aha, they made this particular charge about how when you closed down the Atlanta um, polling booth in the middle of the night and then took basically suitcases out from under the counter and stuffed them into the machine. I want to see a specific refutation of that. I don't want somebody announcing generally that there's no fraud. And uh, that's I think, is actually very troublesome because if you look, uh, anybody who wants to make the other case, they're shut out of every mainstream media. Wall Street Journal doesn't believe them. Uh, New York Times, Washington Post, everybody else. You can't even get them to say, you know, Trump made a claim without them putting the word baseless in front of it. Uh, This to me is actually a little bit scary. Now, suppose it turns out that they're absolutely right and that he spoke to these people, they refuted him, and he just continued to lie exactly. I don't think that justifies a lifetime ban which is what Twitter announced. It seems to me that when you want to deal with false information, it's fine. And if somebody wanted to say, look, Donald Trump is just terrible, he has lied about all this stuff, by the time the inauguration takes place and that particular peril is over, I don't think you could shut him down. If it turns out he then lies systematically about somebody else or engages in defamation, you could shut him down then. So the argument is not that he can't be regulated by these characters, but that the remedy is disproportionate to the particular wrong uh, because it's got the wrong temporal framework. And remember, they were going after him long before this kind of thing. Now, to give you but another illustration, um, when, when he got involved with the various kinds of riots that associated with, not by necessarily, the Black Lives Movement and the death of George Floyd, um, he started to talk about how when they start running, we start gunning or some phrase like that. And everybody said, well, that's just clear inflammatory. We take him all. Now, he's not particularly politic, but suppose he had said, we will resist unlawful force by the use of lawful force in order to preserve a civilized society. You wouldn't take that off. And yet that's what he said in this flamboyant, gratuitously stupid language. Look, I want to make it very clear. I was the first person I'm aware of who said that this man should not be president. He should resign. And I did it in January of 2017 because it was exactly the fact that even when he's right, um, he's going to be treated badly. And when he's wrong, the problem about dealing is with, like dealing with a bad child. He's wrong, but you don't know whether you spank him and send him to the room or whether you put him on medicine or whether you send him to reform school. The problem about Donald Trump when he be, misbehaves is that the remedies are often disproportionate to the wrong, sometimes not, and there's going to be an enormous dispute over that particular kind of problem. Now, do these guys have a monopoly? They each have very large shares. If you looked at the Herfindahl indexes, um, you've got yourself basically three major players in these markets. If any two of these companies tried to merge, Adam, everybody would say they absolutely could not do that. So if you wanted to have Apple merge with Google, merge with with Twitter and so forth, forget about it. In fact, at the same time, you're telling me there's no monopoly. You listen to people like Tim Wu and you look at uh, Lena Khan and they're writing reports and issuing statements to the effect that, oh my God, these guys have such monopolistic power. They're abusing it all the time. We have to break them up. Well, I can't get it. If they're right, how could I be wrong? Now, I think they're overdrawn. Because I think they're actually trying to do this in an economic space where there is more product differentiation than there is with respect to the speech. And finally, as I mentioned to you, uh, there have been charges, and they may well be true, that the heads of Google and Twitter and Apple and Facebook get together and decide common media policy. That's a collective refusal to deal. That's an antitrust violation. And, you know, 
are you willing to take that, you know, take what you call it, depositions on that and figure out what they say? I'd be stunned if there isn't that. Lou Kaplow wrote a very fine book, I think he's a bit overdrawn, in which he says, conscious parallel conduct is strong evidence, particularly in pricing matters of antitrust violations under Section 1 of the Sherman Act. Uh, you can make that argument much more strongly here uh, then there's everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And so long as I know that you're going to go after Donald Trump, I can go after Donald Trump because all my Trump loyals are not going to be able to switch to you. And that, I think, is a fairly powerful kind of situation. So as I said, um, I've spent a lot of time doing antitrust stuff and a lot of time doing common carrier stuff. And what you do is you discover that what starts out as a sharp dichotomy between monopoly on the one hand and competition on the other hand, turns out to have huge numbers of intermediate cases and lots of variations, which make it a very hard problem. Well, your mention of Lewis Kaplow is a, is a throwback for me. I was his research assistant a long time ago. Good for you. Um, but um, back when I, I, I thought my, my calling was to be an antitrust lawyer, which it didn't quite work out that way. But You could always you know, repent. But yeah, well... Uh, the last few minutes, I think, are a good reminder that of all the disagreements we've had uh, reasonably on this podcast in its first two years, uh, the vast the, the vast majority of them have arisen from and around uh, Donald Trump, the investigations into Donald Trump, and so on. And we were, we were recording this on January 21st, the day after President Trump left office and President Biden took office. And so... Um, you know, in normal normal circumstances, this would this this would be the time when we close the book on the Trump presidency. Uh, but of course, that's we don't live in normal times, and and the book is still open at least until the Senate decides what to do in terms of a, a trial of the House's uh, second impeachment of President Trump. Um, I don't know if we need to take any time for any closing reflections on on President Trump. You you offered some of a sort just a moment ago, and you know reiterating uh, sort of the challenges of his presidency. I and- cannot tell you how relieved I am that he is gone as a personal matter, but how worried I am as to what the Biden administration will look like. I, I, there was one factoid which I think summarizes my position. When you vote for a president, you vote on two grounds. You vote on administrative policies and you vote on personal character. And nobody can tell you which of these things should be weighed how. That's why it's a judgment. You have to attach your own coefficients. And sure enough, the people who weigh personality first, notwithstanding Biden's evident flaws, are two to one for him. People who think about policy first tended to be much more strongly pro-Trump which put me in that character. I use the word pro in quotes, of course. Um, and I, I think that now that Trump's personality is gone uh, and we're only going to worry about the Biden positions, I think there's a great deal to worry about going forward. Yeah. Well, uh, as, as for me and Trump, obviously, I started as never Trump in 2015, around the time uh, he started saying what he intended to do and how he intended to treat people. Um, but I, if I started never Trump, I ended... Uh, we'll say even never er Trump um, based on the way he, con- he conducted his presidency. Of course, I love the, the judicial appointments were great. Uh, regulatory reform agenda in many, many ways was great. A lot of policies that I just completely disagreed with from immigration to national security to the death penalty uh, and, and on and on, uh, his industrial policy and so on. Um, but all that's left now, other than the shouting, is uh, is the the Senate impeachment trial. I think the House was certainly right to impeach President Trump for 
uh, inciting his his mob to to go storm the Capitol. And I was disappointed that more House Republicans did not vote in favor of impeachment. Although I was glad to see Liz Cheney and a little less than a dozen others uh, take a stand on this. I think it was ten. Was it ten total? Yeah, and yeah. the rumor is she will not be able to run for re-election in Wyoming. Now we'll see. Uh, nothing would surprise me. Um, she now was my student, ten- by the way. Oh, really? I didn't know that. University of Chicago graduate. Do you, do you remember anything about those days? She was, was a, she was a wonderful student. And yeah. she was not only a fine student, but was even nicer about her. But she was one of these people who took politics as a calling. And in all sorts of internal law school affairs and so forth, she was always a very powerful force for good. Yeah. Um, well, I hope she continues to be. Um Senate Republicans now need, well, all senators need to decide what they're going to do with this impeachment trial, whether they'll hear it at all or simply dismiss it. Um, if they decide to hear it, what the process will be, everything from who would chair such an impeachment trial for a past president, um, and then whether to convict and, and whether to take a further step of, if they convict, of, of disqualifying him from office. Now, I just to put my own cards on the table, I, I again, I think the House is right to impeach him. I think the Senate should, I, I think the Senate should hold this trial, although my asterisk is they're going to have to break new procedural ground, which I'm always wary of. Um, but I think here, given the magnitude of what happened on January 6th, it's justified. Um, I do think he should be convicted for it, and I, and I think uh, it would be totally reasonable to disqualify him from future office, although I think that's more of a prudential judgment. But, Richard, what do you think? Well, I don't think they can try him. Let me start, because it turns out we have a very fractured constitution, and it's very difficult to put the pieces together. And the first place to go is to go to Article 2, um, Section 4, and I'm just going to read it. It says, the president, vice president, etc., shall be removed from office for an impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And I will assume for these particular purposes that incitement to riot, if proved, would count as a high crime or misdemeanor. Uh, This basically doesn't tell you how the trials are to be worked. It just says that if you try him and find these things, he's gone. You then go back and you start looking at what happens in Article 1, Section 3. Uh, It says the Senate shall have the sole power to trial all impeachments and then to figure out the sanctions. There is nothing which says in this particular situation, when you impeach a president or anybody else, that you must impeach them or can only impeach them for high crimes and misdemeanors. All that Section 4 of Article 2 says is if you find them guilty of that, you have to get rid of them. Notice it doesn't say anything about disqualification from service in future office. Um, And we don't know whether that's an omission or whether it's an upper bound. So what they can do is presumably if they have the president, they can try him. And then the question is, they could convict him and do this. And oddly enough, it looks as if they don't convict him of a high crime or misdemeanor. They could then disqualify him. But if they do convict him of the more serious thing, they can't. That seems crazy, right? Because you would want the heavier sanctions to apply to the more serious offense. But it's not drafted that way. Uh, The most important thing is to talk about the definite article. When the president of the United States, it says in Article 1, and the president, it says in Article 2, I assume that doesn't mean any person who was ever president. It means the president. And what it's designed to do is to get this guy out of office. And then if you're going through the article that you can disqualify, if you've impeached and convicted him, 
then you can disqualify him under your view. But if he's not the president, how can you do it? So you have to read the clause to say when the president or any past president of the United States is tried. And, well, could we try Jimmy Carter? Um, There's no statute of limitations built into this stuff. You don't need any if it turns out you're only dealing with sitting presidents. Uh, There is this very interesting exception where somebody is basically charged with all sorts of abuses in the 1870s, one of the Secretary of War, and he resigns before he's impeached. And that's a very different kind of case because it's not, I believe that you're not going to be allowed to resign in order to escape impeachment. That's a standard case of circumvention. And so if Donald Trump tried to resign to escape, and I would be against it, but his turn runs out. And so at this point, if there's any opportunism, it's by the defendant. Def- by the Democrats in the House running this thing through at record space, no investigation of anything before they make the charge except seeing the film. If there's opportunism, there it is. So I don't think that you can do this. And I think politically it's a good thing. Joe Biden's talking about unity. Remember, Trump has 75, 75 million supported. A lot of them believe that he's been railroaded all the way through. You run this trial. You tie up the Senate for months because you can't delegate this to the committee. You tie up the chief justice. And you're going to get a defense which is going to say, you say we incited this? Let me tell you what happened on the ground. And they're going to find all sorts of direct incitements and argue his statement, which was, go fight for me. But do it peacefully. Doesn't count as incitement. Now, I agree with you, Adam. God knows how you read this guy, because what he says and what he means, he's a master of stating A and believing anti-A. And so it's impossible to kind of pin this character down, which is one of the reasons why he's such an infuriatingly effective rhetorician. But you're trying to get yourself a conviction on a criminal case. It seems to me you've got to be able to do it more on the words and less on the the aura. And so I'm not even sure they could get it. I doubt very much they would get the Republicans to move, although many of them would like to impeach him because they want to get him out of the party. That seems to be the position of Mitch McConnell. But I think it's a, a illegal. I think it's wrong. And I think it won't be done. And one other thing is, suppose they do impeach him and they convict him and they disqualify him. He now goes and signs up to register for a primary in Kansas. And they said, but you're impeached. He says, sorry, ultra-virus. That's a void judgment. He gets to, to attack this collaterally. And I, my view is he will win unless the, stars, the cards are stacked against him politically. And then you have a further nightmare. He wins in, New, in Kansas and he loses in New Jersey. What then? Up to the Supreme Court, you go, we don't need this. Yeah, but his his ability to collaterally attack the unimpeachment and disqualification by simply trying to run for office and, and and forcing the hand of decision makers and then you know carrying out the subsequent litigation. I agree completely with you that 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 could and would happen. Uh, the the Senate voting to disqualify him would not be the final word, and that's some that that scenario has to play into the senators' um, prudential judgments about impeachment. But just to back up. If I understood you correctly, you were saying that the Senate cannot try a president for an impeachment after he has left office. The House, At the expiration of his term. Right, right. But you're right, you're right. Um, and the, the House, for a proper impeachment, needs to carry out some sort of process. I, I think I understood you just say along the way that there needs to be hearings or something or there ought to be hearings. I, yeah, this is not a constitutional requirement. Yeah. This is a prudential one. It sounds like the save by the bell theory of impeachments, that once a president enters that window in his last weeks in office of, 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 his, of his normal term, 
um, where it's impossible for the House and the Senate to carry out the full process of impeachment, then the president becomes impeachment proof. Uh, but not doesn't. I mean, if we're creating about, if we're talking about about uh, evasion, about about bad incentives, it's it seems to me that you you're creating the worst incentives of all, just freeing the president from a risk of of, of impeachment and and conviction in the last month of his administration. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think once you start going after him and doing what I regard as thoroughly improper, trying to force Pence into saying this man is, quote, unable to serve under the 25th Amendment, you're going to enrage him. He's much more likely to do something crazy if he feels he's being illegally and improperly attacked than he is if they just kind of say, look, you're out of office. We really want to watch you like a hawk while you're in here, but we're not going to try to do this impeachment. Um, so I think it's there. The other thing, of course, is the president is not immune from all criminal liability by virtue of his office. Um, it's a kind of a complicated question, right, as to when presidential immunity starts to take place. Uh, there are some people who say that it will be act act. Absolute. We don't know that. And in my view, if you found a president, for example, who tried deliberately to provoke martial law and to order people to arrest his opponents and so forth, I think that he could be tried for that as a criminal matter even after he left office. Um, in this particular case, I suspect that you would not be able to get a conviction, certainly not for insurrection. I'm not even sure you could get it for incitement of riot um, and so forth. If you're using the standard criminal standards, um, there's an ambiguity in his speech and there's enough downstream activity that we don't quite yet understand uh, that will make this a very difficult trial. Remember, this is a causation case. He says something, people do something. Were they the people in the crowd that he spoke to? Most of them stayed there. Uh, were they the people who went over from the crowd? Probably not. Were they people who were already there? Probably so. Were they Trump supporters? Probably yes. Were they constantly goading each other on in a terrible way? Probably yes. So if you've got direct incitement by some maniac on the streets sitting right there in the Capitol building, it's going to be hard to say, ah, this guy really doesn't matter. What really matters is the president. And in fact, some of the arguments have been made of the fact it's the climate of opinion that Trump created for months in advance that counters the incitement uh, for which he should be impeached. At that point, I think the case becomes really hopeless. And so I, I think it's actually much harder. Let me put it to this way. If I thought I could get a neutral jury and I had to decide whether I wanted to be the prosecutor, whether beyond the reasonable doubt standard or the defense lawyer, I'd be the defense lawyer. Because I would take this thing and just split it up into every little movement to try to show just how tenuous the causation changes what it turns out to be. And that's not the way the thing gets played in the press. It's just the way you've described it, Trump incited rioters. But boy, oh, boy, when you say, when did he say this to whom and how? And then try to run that through. I think it's going to be a much more difficult case to win. Well, just to be clear, I, I don't know that a, a criminal trial of him, it, you know, brought by a prosecutor in a court of law under existing standards of incitement, whether there, there'd be a case against him or not, I don't know. Um, but then again, that's, that's what, probably that's not. why I've not, that's why I've not really, you know, focused on that at all. In fact, I, I really, I mean, this is a longer conversation, but I hope, I hope president Biden actually grants president Trump a, a pardon for any crimes he may have committed in office. I hope he, he, he announced it. I hope president Biden announces his view that president Trump did, you know, commit violations of law, if that's what Biden believes, but then immediately pardons him because I think prosecutions in courts of law 
of of former presidents by by the, the their opponents in the next administration is a is a dangerous line. But I'd see impeachment as something much different. It's not a criminal process. It's not a legalistic process. It's a it's a political process, not in the low sense, but in the high sense of of the the, the fundamental stakes of the separation of powers and the each branch's duty, but especially Congress's duty, to preserve the constitutional order and also to preserve literally itself against an attack that was incited by the president. And I know we can parse, you know, what did he say when? And and as you said, the president is sort yes. of a master of 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 parsing these things out ambiguity. ambiguously, as Michael Cohen said a long time ago. Um, it reminds me in many ways of the of the the test the Senate testimony in in, in the Godfather too about uh, about the the buffers between Michael Corleone and and the buttons. But I digress. I with this one, I, I for Trump, I don't think it's hard to read him at all. I, I think it's hard not to read him for what he actually means. It's the old, in some ways, the old legal term race ipsa loquitur, this thing that speaks for itself. Um, we've seen how President Trump has operated, not just for the last four years, the last five years, but his last 10 years on the national stage. And whether it was the years of misinformation that he, he sent out into the world directed at his followers, or whether it was the two months, three, uh, three months of misinformation following the election, or whether it was that last moment on January 6th where he and Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and others whipped a crowd into a frenzy about putting up a fight and, and, and you know, urging them to march on the Capitol. I mean, this was not hard to unpack. And it, it, might, be, it, might, be, it might not be well suited for judicial adjudication by a, but with, with a federal prosecutor and a federal judge and a defense attorney. But it seems to me squarely within the wheelhouse of of the House of Representatives and the Senate for purposes of impeachment. Let me read again Section 4, which says that shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction, stress, stress, of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It seems to me what they're arguing here is you have to use a criminal standard of proof. And I think if you actually go back and read Madison carefully, they all were worried about having impeachment so narrowly, um, so broadly drawn that it would become a vote of confidence. Um, and I have no confidence in Trump. So I'm not so sure you could do this. In fact, one of the things about the Constitution is you look at this and you say, okay, now what is the criminal procedure here? And it turns out you don't have any. And so what happens is, I mean, I went back when I wrote my column in Hoover, and I read all the Senate rules with respect to how this works. And there's absolutely nothing in them which deals with the question of how you handle jurisdictional issues. Um, and in fact, the whole decision process is completely ill-suited for that, because this is a major deliberation. But the way the thing reads, dealing only with questions of evidence admissibility, contradiction, and so forth. Chief Justice makes a ruling. Any single member can challenge the ruling. And then because they're worried about expedition and endless debates, is there's an up or down vote on that to override the Chief Justice, presumably by a simple majority vote. That's the procedures that you have. So you, you had mentioned something very interesting before. If, in fact, you're going to have the Senate deliberate as to whether or not you can try a former president, that's not an impeachment. That's going to be chaired by Kamala Harris. I think. Well, wait a second. And and first of all, I mean, I I do just fundamentally disagree over whether impeachment, the word crimes, high crimes, the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors in in the impeachment clause that you read, means 
criminal laws specifically. I, I just disagree. I, I know that Madison said in the founding debates that impeachment shouldn't be a matter of just simple maladministration. But those debates also made clear that they were not focused exclusively on crimes and the things like the abuse of the pardon power would themselves give rise to impeachment. The, the impeachment of a, of a former president for, for actions he took while in office obviously breaks pretty new ground, at least with respect to a president. Um, but I look at that clause you keep referring to, and I don't see a difficulty here. I agree. I mean, it says on its face in Article 2, Section 4, that if the president is convicted uh, in an impeachment for, for treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors, uh, then he shall be removed from office. It doesn't say anything about the former president, because, of course, at that point, it is a moot point. But the remedy that's stated in Section 1 that you also read about disqualification from office, that is something that you know clearly can attach to a former office holder. The question, but he can't be. The question is, can he be tried? And it says when the president of the United States is right. tried. It doesn't say when a former president of the United States and that, is tried. That, or, and that is, I think, a real challenging question about who you're saying when a president is tried, the vice the, the vice president cannot preside over the Senate for obvious reasons, and so they have the Chief Justice of the United States preside in those circumstances. I, this is something I I really do wonder is is what's the best reading of who presides in a Senate impeachment trial of a former president for the actions he took while president. Oh, I know. No, no. I, I, my position is if God forbid we should do this, the chief justice would have to preside over the trial. But the question is, would the chief justice try over any Senate deliberations to have the trial? If you look at the Senate rules after the trial commences, there's no effective vehicle to discuss jurisdictional issues. It's not in the rules and they have to write new rules, uh, which the, have nothing to do with established precedent. So he doesn't, if it's a pretrial stuff, I think then the vice president is president of the Senate. She would now preside over that hearing to debate this issue. And we don't even know whether it could be done by a simple majority rule or not, right? Because it turns out that when you start looking about the president, um, the concurrence of two thirds of members present is necessary for the conviction. Uh, do we need 51 votes to get the thing resolved on the hearing, or do you need two-thirds? We don't know. And I'm going to disagree with you on one thing else. I think it would be much preferable to let this thing drop than to have Joe Biden give a pardon, having announced him to be guilty. I mean, I, I think people would be happy about the pardon, but I think they'd be enraged about the judgment if, in fact, they're strong Trumpers. And I think the central challenge that Joe Biden has to face as a president is keeping his supporters in line with him. At the same time, he doesn't antagonize the 76 million people who voted for Trump. And boy, you want to antagonize them, say, I think that this was open and shut incitement. I think, you know, you and I probably are closer together than this, but there's a vast, huge number of people there who think he was exercising his constitutional right of free speech. And, you know, uh, I don't want to antagonize those people anything more. I think the House got it across. They really think it was terrible. They impeached it. Let him stand as the man who's the only president who's been impeached twice and go on with the rest of your agenda. And that's what I would actually want to spend my time fighting about if I were worrying about him. Yeah, I mean, in the end, you and I obviously disagree quite a lot on on the impeachment and, and you know, 
how, yeah. what happens when the house impeaches a president and he's no longer president when it comes time to try him. But let's, I guess we'll put an end to that for now because you raise the question looking forward is how ought the Biden administration conduct itself? What ought the Biden administration do yesterday? President Biden's inaugural address was was a, a message of unity. He then later signed a declaration of a national day of unity. His impeachment, or sorry, his impeachment, uh, his inaugural address was maybe <laughs> shortest president. On maybe record, maybe right? that'll come later. Um, but but his his inaugural address was very very thin on policy, and it was much more a statement of unity, which is surely why I liked it so much because I'm going to disagree to say the least, with so many of his policies. There's some things that I'm already worried about. Um, but in terms of starting with a broad message of unity, I, I liked it. And quite frankly, I thought it was pretty credible coming from him because the fact is Joe Biden isn't AOC. He's not Elizabeth Warren. He's not Bernie Sanders. He's not any of the progressives that the Democratic Party decided not to choose as their nomination. They chose Joe Biden, who's just not a man of the left. He's a man of the center left. Um, and I think his, you know, I don't like how he treated Clarence Thomas at Thomas's confirmation hearings, but beyond that, or me, or me. No, but beyond that, I think he's, he's carried himself with, with dignity and uh, throughout his time in public service. And so I quite enjoyed yesterday's inauguration as much as I'm worried about some of the policies that'll inevitably follow. What, what do you think? I thought the speech, generally speaking, was something which was a very favorable contrast to the Trump speech. Uh, Trump basically was a confrontational in your face from day one. Uh, it was a sign that things were not going to go well. Um, and Biden essentially took a much more conciliatory tone. Uh, on the other hand, the contrast between the speech and the executive orders is very troublesome. Um, he decided to sign an order stopping the Keystone Excel pipeline. I regard that as a blunder of the first order in so many ways that it's hard to kind of shape. First of all, you want to have unity. You want to have right, red talking to blue and blue talking to red. The last thing you do is take an order like this and put it into place without giving anybody who's on the other side of it a chance to speak. Um, it's just too premature. Secondly, I think it creates a tremendous degree of unnecessary tension between us and the Canadians because they're rather furious about the high-handed treatment that they've received on this. I think it's going to break his own coalition in part because Biden is both a labor man on the one hand and an environmentalist on the other. Labor is strongly behind the building of the Keystone Pipeline. And indeed, when I represented a coalition some years ago about other kinds of pipelines, mainly the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, this organization had strong labor membership on the one hand and strong small business membership on the other. And I think he's going to alienate his labor group. Third, I mean, this is an international affair. And if you reduce the total amount of oil that is available in one form or another to export to Europe or to the rest of the world, uh, what happens is you are going to play in the hands of Putin and everybody else by essentially giving them more control over market share. You're going to completely upset the balance of trade in the United States. And I think it's a disaster in that. And then last, he's trying to talk about this as a global warming issue. This is preposterous. Uh, there are almost no leakage that takes place from the pipeline. 
pipeline. The question is what's going to happen at the end use. If you don't let it go to the United States, it will be shipped somewhere else and it will still be creating emission. You won't reduce aggregate world emissions. You'll shift them to China. We'll get all the productivity and we'll get half of the pollution. So I just don't think he's thought this thing through at all. And I will say categorically, I don't know who the guy is who's the well, the secretary of the the environmental guy, um, the fellow from North Carolina, I gather. Uh, but if you want to find two people whom I have zero trust in, try Gina McCarthy and uh, John Kerry. I think they have terrible judgment on all of these issues. And I think Biden is going to basically take a disastrous position to ruin the electrical grid, to ruin the NSC supply in his futile effort to enclose a system of global warming where no matter what the position on, position is on global warming as a risk, and I think it's wildly overstated, uh, the pipelines contribute so little to that uh, that it's simply a diversion to use that as a very strong anti-developmental message, which is going to wreck the American economy. So on that, I think he gets himself a solid F uh, the first time out. And so when I look at the two things together, the unity speech and the unilateral action, I'm actually worried because if he can use the unity language, the paper, over all of these one-sided actions, then it's going to be a long four years. Yeah, I'd, I'd say unity doesn't necessarily mean unanimous consent. And n- needless to say, they're going to pursue policies. It's certainly not. Right. They're going to they're going to pursue policies that that alienate a quarter of Americans, sometimes a half of, of Americans. And that, this one's probably more than fifty percent. Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I don't know. Um, but I'd say, what, you know, obviously, I, I think it's a mistake to cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Um, I, I thought it was an interesting coincidence of policies on that first day, that first suite of executive orders. Keystone XL canceling that, and then his his move to to reinvigorate uh, DACA. And I look at both of these policies as very si- similar issues in one respect, and that's the the dangers of 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 uncertainty, of legal flip flops. Of, of unsteady administration, uh, both in immigration and in Keystone and broader infrastructure development. What we see is a national policy of total chaos from one administration to the next with no real steadiness of, of law undergirding them. Uh, the, 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 the dreamers, the, the, the kids have lived their lives. They live their lives in total uncertainty about their legal status, fostered by, you know, cha- ever-changing executive branch policies. Um, ma- and major, you know, infrastructure companies, which are obviously very different from these these immigrant kids, um, you know, they are looking out at at, at how to build infrastructure for the last decades, um, and trying to plan that in a regulatory environment where things could change on the flip of a of a switch every four years is just a is a recipe for for chaos and it deters you know necessary investment investment by those companies investment in america by those kids um the framers worried about this a lot hamilton wrote about the dangers of mutable administration of just wiping away uh policy by moving from one administration to the next the recipe for this is writing laws that create stability and and that narrow the scope of discretion for any administration and then putting on each administration that obligation, both as a matter of constitutional oath and just as a matter of, of honor, um, to carry out those those statutory policies that even the, the new administration disagrees with. 
Um, but I think these two policies, immigration and infrastructure, really illustrate what a problem we have, a fundamental constitutional problem of, 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 of ill governance because of the lack of stability uh, fostered by the lack of real meaningful law on the, these subjects. Look, I can't, could not agree more with you. I think that one of the great tragedies of Trump and to some extent the Democrats is this whole fight over DACA. If you want to talk about a group of individuals whom you want to become citizens, the DACA kids and the dreamers are surely those people. And they should have been able to work out a very simple deal in which the statute would have been extended under the previous terms. Uh, the Democrats insisted on making it an immediate and automatic road to citizenship. Maybe that's the right proposal. I tend to agree with it, but I don't think you want to do that when you're fighting with Trump, and Trump constantly uses this as a threat to try to get his wall or something else. So to some extent, I think it's a plague on both their houses. I don't think there's a plague on both their houses with the pipelines. I have worked on this issue for 10 years, more or less, and I think that the anti-case is one of the weakest cases I've ever seen on environmental grounds whatsoever. And a fine judge like Judge Boesberg, when he issued his decision that he was going to pull the permits with respect to the DAPL pipeline based upon a one in a million probability that there might be a flooding of an artificial lake called Lake Oahe. I thought he just completely misunderstood the irreparable harm kind of principle. So uh, I think the judges are bad on this. I think the general attitude to assume that global warming is a Trump on every issue is terrible. If you now look at the situation in California and you look more importantly at the situation in Germany, their efforts to try to make the fundamental principles or fundamental sources of energy, solar and wind, has produced a complete catastrophe. There will be rolling blackouts. There'll be massive shutdowns and so forth. And for what? Um, almost invariably, all the substitute devices are not risk-free. They're not pollution-free. Uh, they have many risks in both of these directions. It's the single worst trade imaginable. And that's why I fear Biden so much. But the first thing that Trump did when he came into office on pipeline is he took a series of irresponsible moves made in the Obama administration to block the completion of the DAPL pipeline in December of 19 of 2016, and he reversed them. And he did it the right way. He didn't say I could approve it because he could not. But what he said is he was going to reinstate the um, Army Corps of Engineers report and let it go to Congress for a vote where it passed quite simply. So that is, I think, on the administration side, a real contest. Trump got it right. Biden got it completely wrong. And so, as I said before, if your objections to Trump were because of his dreadful behavior. I understand that. But when it comes to Biden, the objections are going to be because of his dreadful administration. And I'm not saying he's going to do that. But the move that he took on the pipeline was not that of a center-left guy. It was of a hardline progressive who essentially believes that you have to keep fossil fuels in the ground, a position which is so ignorant it's really hard to know where to begin when it comes in the denunciation. Now, I'm surely going to disagree, too, with the, with the Biden administration on energy and environmental policy to a large extent. I'm also worried about financial regulation. I'm writing a piece today about how I think the Biden administration is going to turn financial regulation into everything regulation to the detriment of, of financial regulation itself. Um, but, Richard, I look out ahead. I look, keep going. Keep going, guys. <laughs> Richard, I've, lo I've looked back at the last two years of our disagreements, and, and I'm looking forward to the Biden years. And I, I do worry uh, that we're not going to have much to disagree about on this podcast in terms of of uh, of, of 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 our our unity and in, in disagreeing with the Biden administration. Well, um, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's happened is we may agree with the about 
the Biden administration have strong disagreements about the nature of the opposition to him. Um, so I, I think we should just see how this emerges, uh, what's going on. Uh, but uh, my view about this is I thought the speech was fine and I thought the executive orders were very dangerous. The four areas in which he wants to work, I think he's wrong at some level. I don't think economic equality is the biggest issue of the time. I think it's economic growth. Um, just a simple point is that Workers did a lot better under Trump than they did under Obama because he had essentially laissez-faire policy. There was a dreadful piece in the New York Times by Paul Krugman saying everybody knows that the minimum wage law has no effect on anything. Raise it to $15. And then you see in the Wall Street Journal two days later a piece by somebody who represents employers who says you put in a minimum wage requirement for workers, particularly those on tips, and you're going to cost hundreds of thousands of jobs in that particular injury. So whom do you believe? Well, my view is you certainly don't believe Paul Krugman because he doesn't have any hands-on experience. You just look at the standard demand curves and you realize that these huge shifts will have very powerful situations, at least in those cases where the market wage is just above the minimum wage. It's going to be catastrophe. If it turns out the market wage is well above the minimum wage, it's not going to make much of a difference. The reason the empirical studies are so difficult to do is you don't know what the gap is when you look at the responses. So when you see a negative response, it could either be that the minimum wage law doesn't affect anything, or it can be this minimum wage was still below the market wage, so it didn't affect anything. Uh, but I think the Biden administration on that, on the gig economy, on the pro-union stand, it's going to be a hell to pay on the economy type issue. Well, I, I agree with that. And and even if we don't find as many opportunities to disagree, I will look for every possible uh, opportunity to disagree with you, Richard. I, you know, I, I hope our, our listeners have enjoyed this show for the first two years, and I'm I'm looking forward to our next conversations, even if they, they don't happen quite as often as they did in the past. But surely we'll, we'll find a reason to disagree before long. Then you're most reasonable on that. <laughs> well, thanks as always uh, to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And please join us for the next episode of, of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.